There's no non-radical future. Either you have a radical future where you change everything or you have a radical future where you have climatic uh, changes and, uh, and, and, and the world looks completely different. As it... on, on one level, people wonder, you know, are, we, are we facing civilizational collapse, for example? And if not, you know, what, what are we facing? Um, and, and sort of like, what's that timeline? Yeah, yeah, this is a really, yeah, this is a really good and difficult question. Hello, Dr. Paul Behrens. I'm so grateful to be speaking to you this morning. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks, Amakai. Great to be speaking with you too. Great to speak to you. So you, I, I, I finished your book recently, um, best of, The Best of Times, The Worst of Times. And I'm going to be totally honest with you. Um, for, for months, for about six months, I've really uh, had not had any anxiety. Uh, thank God, because something that I've struggled with. But your book uh, gave me anxiety um Uh-oh. like 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 real anxiety um and and yeah it was it was an intense read yeah i'm i'm, I'm well i'm sorry to i'm sorry to give the anxiety i'm sorry to be the downer i think one of the things that is so tough about the subject and actually other envi- environmental problems we face is they are difficult to look at uh, and they're difficult to accept and i even find on my day-to-day work and in my life i have to be very careful uh, about it, um, because you, it can really sort of let you take over, uh, let, you can let it take over, and it can also be energy sapping uh, and demotivating, uh, and I hope that along with some of that anxiety, and the guy, there was also a sense that, uh, you know, if we work towards this hopeful future, things, things look a lot, lot better. Yeah, and we'll, we'll, di- we'll jump into some of that, but can you start by telling us a little bit about your background and what brought you uh, to writing this book and to this research? Yeah, so uh, my background initially was in physics. Uh, I worked uh, to uh, find good places for wind turbines in in complex terrain. So I worked in uh, sort of atmospheric flow and and, and what wind does. Uh, And then I took a sort of fairly meandering path between academia and uh, policy uh, and even some uh, business representative groups uh, of wind, for example, um, through working at the Royal Society of New Zealand for a while, uh, and now working as a professor of environmental change at Leiden University. Uh, And so now I work across a number of different domains, energy, food, uh, climate change. uh, And that's what really sort of brought together sort of the the holistic view that I wanted to bring across in the book, uh, which is the sort of how things interconnect, how society interconnects with the the environment uh, and how these very big picture systems that we all rely on every day influence the world in the way that they do and, and how what it looks like if that continues the way it is and what we can do about it. Yeah, and it's it's uh, meticulously sourced and draws from all sorts of domains, um, especially especially the physical sciences, physics. Um, to I want to I want to read some some quotes from the book to, as we start off here. Um, I, I feel like that's might be helpful in getting sort of the the, the viewer or the listener on the same page. Um, just understanding sort of what this conversation is, what the context is. Um, if if my if my quotes go on too long or something, um, hopefully that won't happen. But I, I don't think it will. But we could we could edit that afterwards. But um, I just these are these are some of the quotes that that for me really stood out and, and again gave a sense of like what this book is about. And so so I want you know people to sort of appreciate the tone here. Um, so I, I have in front of me quote: "In a very real sense, it's already too late. We have failed." Millions of people have already died from climate disruption. Millions more are currently suffering, and somewhere between hundreds of millions and billions are in the firing line. This is not like the other human problems we believe we can eventually get around to fixing. Problems like global poverty, hunger, modern slavery, the ones we believe are slowly improving even if they aren't. The ones we assume will eventually get there, wherever there is. Climate change isn't a problem to clean up eventually like a chemical spill. Climate breakdown is a trap, which we have set and into which humans have decidedly stepped. It presents a retreating frontier, no longer a future of expansive human possibility, but one of struggle and limitation. Skipping a bit. Now the scientific numbers are becoming manifest. Heat waves, droughts, floods, hurricanes, wildfires. Everywhere we look, things are changing beyond recognition. It would take several books to describe the unprecedented death and destruction in the past few years alone. And then you go on to describe uh, what that what that looks like. Um, and, and then skipping ahead, uh, these past few years, as horrendous as they've been, are the best we can hope for in the future. From now on, 
these years will feel like a brief reprieve. Even if we cease all emissions today, things may still get worse for several, several centuries. As a species, we have careened up to and off a cliff and are now having a midair civilization crisis arguing about what to do as we plummet. Um, I, I have more quotes, but I think I'll stop there. That's a lot of quotes already. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, you know, what I'm trying to do there is the, the book, which I say to viewers, is interleaving chapters of pessimism and hope. So the you can both hold in your mind the case that this is that is true, uh, that we have had, had horrendous climate impacts already, uh, impacts that we should never forget, impacts that we are showing more and more um, through scientific papers that are directly due to, you know, emissions, excuse me, um, but that the future that we head towards can be better on the whole for many, many people. Uh, and so you can hold these, they almost seem conflicting in a way, but actually they're not. Um, we need to be clear about the pessimism of where we're going and the hope in which we, we can change the trajectory. Yeah, and that's, <clears throat> excuse me. That's a very complex message, and it's the, the sort of the complex message of the book. Um, and I, I think we, hopefully we could try to understand that more as as we as we go along um, in this in this conversation. Um, sort of how how those two things are are compatible. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll say I, you did you did structure the book with pessimistic chapters and and optimistic chapters, and um, I, I think uh, it's it's a beautiful kind of. Uh, parallelism but as a reader the pessimistic chapters seem to hit harder i don't know maybe that's my own bias coming into the book it could be i mean i think yeah that's interesting i think readers can take things both ways and read into each chapter perhaps with more sort of emotional heft and and that maybe does depend on people's original outlook um i think sometimes the pessimism chapters do feel a bit bleak because we have acted far too late and these impacts are manifest and this is something that just does not seem to be changing but as I point out at the start of the book one thing we can rely on is change and in the book I'd point to lots and lots of hopeful trends that we're currently seeing that are also accelerating. Do you want so, to mention some of those? Yeah so I mean things like um the activism that we're seeing around the world, that's very important, and uh, actually probably the most important. That's not just activism out on the streets, but things like legal activism. There's uh, already over uh, a thousand different lawsuits around the world holding governments and corporations to account for their envir environmental impacts, for the climate impacts specifically. And these have huge systemic impacts on the rest of society. If governments are legally obliged to meet certain targets for emissions, then this is a significant pressure against established interests, against the high emitting sectors of the economy, these sorts of things that have to be addressed, you know. Um, so these are really hopeful trends. We also see that the, at least the rhetoric, and I, I have to be a bit careful here, the rhetoric is increasing uh, faster and faster about targets, about goals, about when we get to net zero, uh, where different countries trying to, you know, outdo one another about the trajectories that they're taking. Now, we're still seeing, you know, the atmosphere doesn't care about our words, uh, and we're still seeing increases. Um, but it is hopeful, the way in which we're seeing such rapid change. Uh, and the final one I probably mentioned is, even on an economic basis, if we look at where the largest majority of greenhouse gas emissions are coming from, which is in the energy sector, we have solutions, we already have the solutions there, and many of them are cheaper now to implement new than to continue our existing way. So it's cheaper in many areas of the world now to install solar, to install wind, new, all the land, all the interconnections, all the labour, than to continue running uh, the older fossil fuel plants. And so that really revolutionises what you can expect from the future, what, you, what we can do uh, if we put our minds to it, if we can get this, 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 these social dimensions on board, get, get us, ourselves moving as fast as possible, overcoming the incumbent interests, the fossil fuel companies, uh, the high carbon uh, impact uh, companies. Yeah. Yeah. And, and at one point, I think, um, I forget the exact word, maybe it's like a, a hyper object or something, uh, is, is, what, is how you describe 
this this problem because it's so multifaceted and and and, and at times it, to many people it might feel even incomprehensible with how yeah, far that, that's actually from a philosopher called uh, Timothy Morton, um, and uh, the uh, the books in the in the notes there. Um, and th there's a little bit of controversy within the environmental movements about this because they say, well, you know, it, it, in a sense, it's very simple. We stop we stop emitting. <laughs> um, but I do think that the hyperobject quite nicely describes this struggle to try and comprehend the whole picture. You know, um, and this is, you know, when you think about climate change and you think about what we have to do in, in response to climate change and, you know, other environmental issues like uh, biodiversity, it does imply a shift in the economy, in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we live. I mean, it is cross-cutting across all of the different ways in which we live day to day. <laughs> so, you know, I, 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 that's why I quite, I, I personally don't mind the terms of that much. And I think it's quite evocative of a, of a, of a confusion that some, you know, the, we can have when we're looking at the bigger picture. And hopefully in the book, I sort of start to describe some of the shape of this, uh, this object. But um, yeah, so that's, that's one, one of the reasons why I brought that up uh, there. Yeah, and, and I want to come back to this and I want to sort of explore more of these, like the, the tendrils which uh, this, this book uh, explores, you know, all, all the different ways in which it impacts our, our lives and our societies and our governments and, and the future in all different ways. So, but before I do, I mean, there's, there's a lot of uh, climate change skepticism and denialism in my country, in America. Um, there's, a, there's a famous uh, moment uh, from uh, the Obama years, so, so not long ago when we had a Republican senator uh, bring a snowball onto the the floor of, yeah. of Congress in, in Hoff, yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, to say that climate change isn't real. Um, so, what would you say to someone who thinks that you know you're just another prophet of doom? You're just another doomsayer. Every every year, every generation, there's doomsayers. You know, Thomas Malthus uh, thought that we were you know going to have a overrun by hope too many too many people on the planet it wouldn't be able to feed them, and he was wrong. And 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 you know scientists thought that we'd be you know covered in ice by now. Is that is that what do you say to that? Um, it, it depends on how far you're talking. I mean, if if you're saying um, the, the pure sort of skepticism of I don't think climate change exists. I mean, first of all, that's really no longer worth engaging with that much. To be to be perfectly honest. Um, Every single country in the world has signed on um, to the uh, summary of the policymakers uh, in the recent IPCC report, which means that basically every government and uh, country in the world uh, is saying it's an established fact. It is unequivocal that humans have uh, warned the planet and climate change uh, is real and is causing uh, the, these damage, this damage. Um, so, you know, in order to be skeptical of climate change, you would have to be skeptical of every single government in the world, from China to the US, from Norway to New Zealand, lots of different types of governments. Um, you'd have to um, say that they would be all lying. You would have to be saying that uh, all the sci major scientific institutes, all the major scientists around the world would be lying. You'd also have to be uh, suggesting that the measurements are made up somehow, and that the even the lived experience of many people over the last few years um, is, is not valid, is, is, not, is not true, because what we're starting to see is that the weather extremes are shifting so much with the climate change that we currently have, um, that this is quite visible to a lot of people. So I think this is sh shaking a lot of people out of their slumber. So I don't really spend a lot of time thinking about how to convince the true skeptics. I don't think there's any sort of way to or effective way to necessarily reach in an in in a in, a, in an efficient way um, people who are that strongly committed to an idea normally it has much more to do with uh, other things in their lives their other values their other motivations than it has to do, anything to do with the science anything to do with the interpretation of information so I don't really typically spend much time there um, I think you know it, it, what's worth spending more time is the sort of the, the majority of people. I think, who in the back of their minds know something's wrong. Uh, they, there's this bubbling uncertainty. There's this bubbling, maybe stress, anxiety, as you put it. And communicating and reaching out to them to tell them how much they should be worried. You know, how, how much effort should we be making to change? And I think that comes back to that point of the, where you're saying, oh, well, you know, maybe Paul's just another doomist. He's, he's, a, he's a bit like Thomas Malthus and that never came true through. And I, and I talk about that in the book, you know, it doesn't, it didn't come true, uh, you know, and um, that there are many ways in which humans um, manage to escape what, I, what are called progress traps, uh, what are referred to in, in the book as uh, progress traps, which um, 
uh, uh, goes back to uh, other work. Um, and that, you know, that negativity um, is more a reflection of the fact that we don't typically uh, tend to address these problems head on. We tend to invent new ways to try and get out of them. And that's one of the ways in which I was trying to um, highlight some of the dangers in the book, things like solar geoengineering, which we can perhaps, perhaps talk about, which we may end up using. I mean, I, I'm not saying that, you know, we, you know, we won't end up, we won't, we, we won't use it, but more that we don't address the underlying root causes of lots of these problems. Um, so that I think that's what I would say, and 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 I am not trying to be a prophet of doom because I'm trying to give the the options that we have uh, and the trajectories that we have for the future and what that looks like when we do it. Because for a vast majority of the things that we know we need to do anyway, <laughs> most of us already have a sense that needs to be done, even if you haven't seen the scientific research on it. Um, we end up in a better world, a healthier world. You know, we, we, we live in more healthier ways. We have healthier diets. We have healthier brains. We're not pumping air particulates into our brains from our fossil fuel infrastructure, you know, into our organs. I mean, there's so many different ways in which the world, uh, the world looks like a better place. So, yeah, um, I, guess, I guess that's what I would say <laughs> if people yeah. said, oh, Paul's another doomist. Yeah, and, and there's obviously a spectrum of, of denialism. Um, a, a lot of it is just uh, people who, who have, you know, aren't interested in looking at Look, aren't interested in looking at the at the problem, or aren't interested in thinking about it, or, or reading about it, um, which is sort of like a, a soft kind of denialism. You know, they're de denial by by just not not yeah. looking at the reality. Um, or, or a, a denial by delay. You know, I mean, right. there's a there's a fantastic paper uh, called Discourses of Delay, uh, and these are the sorts of things that people come up with to 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 not take take the action that is you know, cheaper for society, uh, more healthy for society. And these discourses, you know, they can range, but a very, a very common one is things like, well, we're just one country, or, you know, I'm just one person, or, you know, if, if, you, if everybody thinks like that, we're never going to get there. Um, so I think that's where a lot of the sort of more modern sort of climate denial has shifted to, is this sense that, oh, you know, it's a problem, we need to get around to it, but not me and not now. And, 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 and we, we can wait for a while until, you know, we extract more fossil fuels, we burn more fossil fuels. Yeah, and, and to give a sense of where we are in America, um, like like the Green New Deal, which is like this proposal of you know some uh, co congressmen and women uh, of the you know progressive left in America, um, which I, I think I think gets mentioned maybe at one point in your book, I'm not sure, um, but is I think has been you know criticized as as like being not not adequate in 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 what in what needs to be done um, is such a fringe view. In like American politics, it's even in like the centrist Democrat, like liberal, um, like discourse, it's seen as being like way too extreme, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's, that is interesting. There is a disconnect even amongst the sort of more extreme sort of, uh, whatever you would say, extreme uh, 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 sort of uh, proposals. I mean, um, Kevin Anderson has a great, uh, has a great saying, he says, you know, there's, there's no non-radical future. Either you have a radical future where you change everything, or you have a radical future where you have climatic uh, changes and, uh, and, and, and the world looks completely different as it will continue to look. Um, in terms of the, you know, the politics of this, I think, you know, it's really fascinating what's happening in different countries and in uh, different communities. In the UK, we had uh, a citizens assembly on climate change, uh, where we brought together over 100 um, people from across the country, different demographics, and sat them down with scientists um, and talked about the issues that we're facing uh, and what sort of options we have to address those uh, issues. And then asked these people, you know, what would you like to do? You know, if you were um, the government, if you could develop policy about, you know, the different trade-offs here, what would you suggest? And, you know, it's incredible when you ask people what they would actually consider. They were talking about frequent flyer levies, you know, paying taxes if you take frequent flights, banning SUVs. I mean, people, for, uh, this is, these are people who are just selected from across the community. These are not environmentalists that say we would ban SUVs. They were even talking about taxing meat. They, they, they walked back a little bit from that in the end, but that this was on the table, you know? And so I think it's really interesting. Now, is this fast enough? Probably even that's not fast enough, but that's far beyond where a lot of the politicians are at. So if you actually ask the people, they're already actually far beyond where the politicians are at, you know? So partly it's actually just even enacting where the people want to go, where the public wants to go. Um, and, you know, there's this probably this constant, you know, communication battle whereby you don't want to disencourage what movement we, we do have whilst continuing 
pushing um, that movement even further and further and further to what it needs to be. Um, because in practice, if you actually follow what the science is suggesting to make 1.5 degrees, we're talking about 10% reductions in greenhouse gas emissions year on year, 10%, uh, which is you know, a sustained reduction of what we saw over the, um, uh, the lockdowns over COVID. Um, in fact, even just a little bit more than that. And you know, depending on how you cut the budget, because the budgets are uncertain, it should be even faster. Now, th these are extreme reductions. Um, so yeah. The, even those sorts of things that the, I was just talking about in the citizen assembly are still not fast enough. Yeah, and and that ties into how uh, how multifaceted this is because a failures of, of climate change policy, I think, are often failures of democracy, as you're saying. Um, I think people often um, are 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 willing to uh, you know make necessary changes, but are but are in America, uh, you know, where, where where I where I think you know about the government that I worry about the most. Um, I see the limitations of democracy and the limitations of, uh, you know, what, what the people want uh, all the time, all around me. Yeah, um, it's, an, it's, it's quite anecdotal, but I'll never forget uh, a colleague once said, um, I need saving for myself. She said, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to eat so much meat, but I really, you know, I really like, I don't want to, and I need saving for myself. And it's a really, yeah. I, I, it's a really interesting way she put it. I hadn't heard her put it that way before. Yeah, and of course, I mean, I, I personally agree 100% when it comes to, you know, to, to meat or when it comes to uh, sugars and, and, and unhealthy foods in general. Um, you know, I, I think, <laughs> of course, they should be taxed, in my opinion, um, because they're things that I enjoy, you know, they're vices. Um, but yeah, and, and then other, the other point I want to just sort of reflect on a little bit from a moral perspective, um, I, I think that human beings um, have, have a very strong capacity for, for deluding themselves, for self-delusion. And, and, and morality dictates that we like are in touch with reality um, because, because if, we, if we're not, if we refuse to look at reality, um, suddenly anything becomes possible, you know? And so much of, of history, uh, the moral failings of our past um, in the century, for example, are, are failures of people to look at what's happening, you know, around mm -hmm. them and see, and see what's, what's so obviously problematic. Um, and the other lesson from history, I think, is that bad things can happen. You know, um, in, in the past hundred years, we saw, you know, two world wars. Um, and, and the idea that uh, we feel so secure, it feels like we're protected, nothing can happen from us, but that's really an illusion. Um, so yeah, I feel like that's another thing that, that came up to me, came up for me when reading your book. Um, another, another thing though, that was very interesting to me was, was the role that income inequality sort of plays in, in your book, how the, the sense in which this, this climate crisis is tied up with, with economics. Can, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, there, there, there is different types of income inequality. Um, so this is one of the issues that I think, you know, will start coming on the table more and more is the international picture. You know, it, it, as different countries start to make targets, they start to hopefully reach these targets, and we start to see more and more in deeper and deeper climate impacts, we'll have to start paying attention more to what's happening multinationally. Um, and, well, we, we should already be doing that, of course. Um, especially when it comes to things like migration, you know, there was another report out the other day talking about hundreds of millions on the move uh, in the next few decades um, due to climate impacts. Um, so, you know, when we're talking about sort of income inequality and we're talking about these inequalities, we can talk about things in terms of internationally or we can think about the things within within countries. Now, the international ones are obviously really important because many of the regions which are most hit by climate impacts, by droughts, uh, by heat waves, uh, by floods, are in regions that have had a historically low income. And the regions of higher income, which are more responsible uh, for a lot of the emissions, are regions which, for a while at least, uh, will see fewer impacts. I mean, they will still see impacts. And don't get me wrong, we still see flooding in the Eiffel. I don't know whether you saw that in Germany, for example. Even the best prepared countries can't, you know, struggle to deal with these extreme events. Um, but a lot of this has been happening in poorer regions of the world for a very long time already. And what does the, I mean, the importance that that has is that, you know, if you're not listening to or to the people who are most exposed to that risk, uh, who have the lowest incomes, who have the lowest say at the table, the lowest economic influence, um, then you're not reacting to the actual experience lived on the ground of the people who are, or, who are experiencing it early, who 
you know, this is coming for everybody, <laughs> but you're not listening to the people who are most exposed to that risk. And so the people most invested in changing the system, A, aren't responsible for most of the missions, and B, don't have much of the economic uh, clout and leverage in order to actually change things. Uh, and when we look at that on the international level, obviously that's very clear. When we look at national level, the, the message is actually very similar. You know, a lot of the environmental impacts that you're seeing, um, this could be air pollution, it could be water pollution, it could be soil, it could be all sorts of different things. Um, a lot of this is correlated with lower incomes because people who are poorer may live near polluting factories or power stations. And the people who have most say over doing something about it, you know, most say about doing something about it are often insulated from those effects. And we're seeing almost a, you know, a defection from society at the moment with it, when you, 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 know, you hear about uh, billionaires buying bunkers in New Zealand or something like this. this is, these are things that you know, actually sap you know, collective uh, will. You know, these, these people, <laughs> if, if I'm getting quite upset about it, you know, these people shouldn't be allowed to be defecting from society, from the society that they've benefited from, uh, from the infrastructure that they've actually grown up in, you know, in America, for example, and then escaping to another country and building a bunker in the middle of nowhere. So I think, you know, income inequality does pay, play uh, this important role, uh, both within domestic politics, but also internationally. Yeah. And, and another way in which I think economics plays uh, a central role in the book, which maybe, maybe to you and me at this point um, feels, feels intuitive, but I think to some people, um, for, certainly at one point, it wasn't obvious to me at all, is, is the way in which markets are limited and the way in which the commons you know, isn't priced in um, into, into our market system. And um, just, just something as simple as like the tragedy of the commons, um, which, which can be analyzed uh, in like test cases, you know, in like a case like overfishing, you know, for example, where um, if, if, if all the fishermen are acting in their self-interest, they're going to catch fish such that there's no more fish in the pond next year, you know, you're outpacing the rate of reproduction of the fish. Well, I think there's so I didn't um, I didn't talk about uh, tragedy of the commons in the book. At least I remember if I remember. Correctly. No, I don't think you did. Yeah, <laughs> um, because I didn't get into it because and the tragedy of commons is actually itself a kind of um, yeah, a little bit tricky. So the tragedy of the commons is basically this idea that if everybody has access to some um, resource, uh, then the individual incentive is to overexploit that resource. Resource. Well, you know, in actually in evidence at, at a local scale, this doesn't happen. Humans find ways in which to um, regulate the commons, access to the commons, uh, but also how much you withdraw from the commons. And a fantastic Nobel Prize winning economist, Eleanor Ostrom, uh, did a lot of work on this. Uh, showing how uh, both formal and informal uh, arrangements, so not, not just uh, laws, but actually also just um, community uh, unwritten rules like norms, uh, can protect um, uh, communal spaces in the long run. Um, but of course, when you get to a market situation uh, where you have, say, a national market, um, you can uh, disconnect the local sanctions and the local norms uh, in order that, that actually protect uh, the commons. So if you want to actually protect the economy, uh, commons, you, economists say they have, you have to internalize the price of the damage that you're doing. You, you know, companies can't be allowed to just continue to pollute. Uh, they must pay some sort of uh, recovery fee in order to uh, bring the system back uh, to as it was when they found it, of course. And of course, when that happens, then you get into the, the horseplay of the formal laws about how you get to do that. And then you get to issues of power and you get to issues of income again, which we just talked about. Um, so these are sort of the key issues is how do you go about building formal laws which actually internalize these costs into say market systems and don't let these markets be totally free to be to, to offload these costs, the, the very real environmental costs, uh, whilst uh, bringing say the prices down of, of their really damaging goods, you know? And there's a really interesting example um, of what you're talking about um, that brings both of those aspects together. So international trade and inequality and um, protecting the commons. And this is um, things like uh, carbon prices. So in the, Europe, the European Union, we've had the emissions trading scheme for a long time. And this covers about 50% uh, or more um, emissions in uh, Europe. And it's about 50, uh, 60 euros a ton that uh, companies have to pay and they can trade. Now, one of the issues with that people worry about that is that, okay, this is a local, if we come back to this idea of uh, protecting the commons, this is a local law, 
But if we live in an international world where we're trading with other countries, what's to stop a European car maker just importing very dirty steel from overseas? And they don't have to buy it from the more expensive steel locally because they haven't had to pay that carbon price overseas. And so what the European Union is doing this year is developing a mechanism for levying carbon prices coming uh, on goods coming in from outside the European Union. And this is very interesting because this is an attempt to take a local a local law. So this could be, you know, on a more local sense, you know, uh, um, looking after the fish that you were mentioning before in terms of a fishing community, but a local law that's at the European level and applying it uh, far, far away. And so, you know, sorry, that's probably, I don't know whether that's too much detail, but, you know, these are the ways in which uh, local laws and norms uh, interact with the global systems and trade and globalization. And we're starting to see actual movement that I didn't think I would see uh, happen so quickly. Uh, things like this carbon border adjustment mechanism, for example, which may sound very policy wonky, but is very important because what happens is, is there's an incentive then for the countries that you're trading with to bring in their own carbon prices. Because why not? If they're, going to ex if they're going to experience those carbon prices in big markets, why not bring their own carbon prices in? And then suddenly people are starting to you know, internalize those costs, as you mentioned before. <laughs> sorry, sorry for talking yeah. for quite long there, but I was trying to link to those two points you, you made up, uh, economy and, uh, uh, and, uh, and markets. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And, and I think um, there's, a lot, there's a lot to discuss and, and, and the book goes, I think, into depth, for example, um, what you're talking about, also how GDP is limited um, as a measure of, of uh, our economies and things like that. And so there's, there's, there's a lot there. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about sort of tipping points. I mean, I, you, there's, um, there's also a lot of, a lot of things to worry about still, you know, this, I think so far we focused a lot on, on the, on the changes that, that have been, you know, relatively positive, but, but we, there's a lot of the book is about um, sort of processes that are like, like self-reinforcing uh, cycles. Um, and, and the book deals with a, a branch of physics, which when I was in my undergraduate uh, in physics, I, I, I dipped my toes in a little bit, uh, which is, you know, like catastrophe theory and um, the way in which uh, we, the, the statistical tools that describe these kind of catastrophic events. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. So what is typically happening over time as we put more and more warming gases into the atmosphere is that we are changing the climate. Uh, and this, the climate is the sort of weather regime that different uh, areas experience. Uh, and we are shifting this climate uh, over time. And underneath this, then, we're shifting the energy flows uh, quite significantly, large-scale energy flows, uh, things like uh, the ways in which um, ice and um, uh, the ice caps or the ways in which heat has moved around in the oceans. We are shifting the uh, distribution of energy and also injecting more energy into the system because we are with, we're holding more heat uh, in, in the atmosphere itself. And so over time, we are shifting the extremes further and further towards uh, the more the more extremes. And I, I've actually got a, um, a, a figure I can show you here. Um, great, yeah. If I can share the screen here. Uh, and what we can see, this is actually from the IPCC. And what we can see here, hopefully you can see my uh, cursor, is you can see the distribution of temperatures that we would see in different climates. Uh, the first one is an increase in the mean um, temperatures that we might see. So we see this uh, curve, this bell curve. Sometimes we get cold weather, sometimes we get hot weather. And you know, if we're not injecting uh, greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere, uh, then things may stay reasonably stable, uh, at least over, you know, human life, uh, human lifespans. But as we are increasing the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, we are increasing the atmosphere's ability to retain heat in the atmosphere, in injecting more energy into the atmosphere. And we're moving the mean towards the right here. And so now we have more hot weather uh, and more record hot weather, because this record hot weather, if we see this dotted line and we see this very dark red, this is above anything that we would have seen before. This is what the, when the IPCC calls um, unprecedented events, you know, unprecedented, you know, for a reason, because they're not in the historic record. Uh, and so we're seeing more and more historic events, but also a greater frequency of what would have been <laughs> um, extreme events previously. So we see more and more extreme events. Um, there's also what, what also happens is an increase in what's called the variance, so the spread of this graph. Uh, 
So we actually see a spreading of this graph so that we see, um, even if with the same mean, a, a sort of more variation uh, because of the, the warming. And when we add these both together, we get a new climate that looks very, very different. Right. Um, and so this, in short, is why we're being why we're pushing more and more to extreme events and why, you know, if we talk about, um, you know, maybe thresholds at which society finds it hard to cope, it's because society is, is in this unprecedented world when all of our systems are designed around a climate that has, has, has disappeared, has gone. You know, all of us uh, agricultural systems, our energy systems, our urban systems, everything is designed around a climate uh, that, is, that, is, that, that has disappeared now and that is much, much warmer and sees much greater um, uh, extreme events. I'll stop sharing this now. Sure. Yeah. And yeah. I think I think we have sort of you know, some intuition around like an increasing mean temperature because um, yeah. you know, our statistical brains are, are probably more comfortable with like a, a nice even, you know, bell curve. But when, when you talk about expanding the variance, I feel like that um, is something which is harder to to wrap our, our heads around. Um, yeah, and, and not only that is that um, you know we often talk in terms of uh, global averages. So we talk in terms of uh, 1.5 degrees, uh, two degrees. You know, people say you know actually our, our current policies are um, taking us to above two degrees, a little bit above two degrees. So we need even more um, uh, targets, um, even within the rhetoric. You know, depending on whether we get even to the targets that we have today. Um, but actually, around the world, we see very different um, increase increase in temperatures. Uh, the poles have seen increases of four or five degrees uh, above uh, uh, normal. So you know, we actually see different warming across the planet, as well as these uh, this variance, this these different extremes. These you know, moving the the the, the weather, uh, the extreme events uh, 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 towards uh, the tails there. Yeah, and and also the, the, in in my probability courses back in my you know, undergraduate physics day. So I, I can't speak to exactly how applicable uh, this, this, this is, but you know, we, we talk about, again, like a standard normal distribution versus a power law distribution, which has this fat tail. And, and, the, and the, the power laws come up a lot in catastrophe theory. So you know, when we think about even without climate change in the context of hurricanes or, or, or earthquakes, you deal with these, these fat tail distributions. Um, and and there's this extremely relevant for like insurance companies and mm. and if we're planning for risk of our you know planetary risk these are obviously uh, the most the most relevant things to worry about and and it's so unintuitive because um, on, on these fat tails the variance is so wide at times it can even be undefined um, that yeah. it's it's really hard to to plan for risk. Yes, yes, absolutely. So the idea here really is that. If you are unlucky and you get hit by you know multiple events at one time, the impacts can be much much larger than being hit by one event at one time, you know. So uh, in in sequence. So if I, if I get a drought and a uh, heat wave uh, at the same time, or a, a flood and a hurricane at the same time, it's very different to being hit by a flood and then a few months later a hurricane. The uh, impacts then are nonlinear. You know, you can get a complete collapse of a community. You know, uh, yeah. and so often it's the ways in which different pressures that society are already experiencing combine to flip the society into a completely different state. Um, so yeah, this, these are really important. Yeah, things to think about when we're thinking about the you know the, the global food system. We have a global food system which is incredibly efficient. Uh, but relies on a certain number of bread baskets around the world, areas where large amounts of food are produced, places like uh, areas of Brazil, um, the uh, southern US, um, the uh, areas in um, around the Black Sea, um, areas in some areas in Canada. Now, if you have more and more extreme events and they hit all of the same you know, several at the same time. So, for example, you get a Katrina-style hurricane in the US, and you get uh, flooding in the Brazilian Amazon. Then suddenly, you're knocking off about forty percent of all the soybeans uh, in the world that's being traded, um, and you're going to have see huge uh, price spikes. These soybeans go to to feed animals. They go to lots of different types of products. Um, this was an example, by the way, uh, given by uh, somebody who uh, Chatham House researcher who wrote a report on chokehold. Uh, cho um, uh, what's the word? Sorry. Um, choke points in the global uh, food system. And, you know, then it becomes a little bit easier to see how multiple events, which, yes, they're unlucky, so we wouldn't expect to see them often, but could have such huge ramifications for society. Yeah. Yeah. And another, another nonlinearity, uh, which comes up in the book and is, is often talked about, um, but maybe, um, 
you know, we don't have to go into it uh, right now, but is, is these, these like feedback loops and these tipping points in the weather system. So that like the, the melting of Arctic ice um, changes the, the way in which, yeah, sun is reflected from, from those. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a really, yeah, there's a, so I think people, as you said, I'm a child, Kai, sorry, that there is this sort of like understanding a little bit of these, uh, these um, feedbacks. And yeah, a classic one is um, the ice in the Arctic. Uh, as the ice melts, uh, you're turning that white surface into the blue of the ocean, which allows the blue of the ocean to heat up more, which then melts more ice than in a, in a reinforcing cycle. There are other dynamics for feedbacks uh, of ice sheets as well, uh, quite a few different dynamics where we're, the most of them are positive uh, feedbacks in, ter in terms of uh, de degrading the ice sheets uh, more and more. Um, what's important to note is that the models generally suggests that once you get to net zero you generally halt the warming generally there's a there's a large amount of uncertainty depending on what you assume for aerosols for different greenhouse gases we could see some some continuing warming but in general when you get to net zero it it it, 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 it sort of um evens out however I, what i think that message misses is that the energy the systems the large-scale systems the energy in the system can still be shifting around even under that elevated state. So we can still see continuing sea level rise. I mean, we would still see continuing sea level rise for on the order of centuries, even if we get to net zero. So this is bringing, you know, this, this is really sort of long-term thinking. It's like, how are you going to deal with that in the future? You know? Yeah. And so with these tipping points, it's important to um, disconnect perhaps what we can expect for the large-scale systems um, and for, um, you know, the general sort of theory and, you know, what could happen to, 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 to temperatures. Yeah. So many people at some point in their life, unfortunately, will, will have the experience of going to a doctor and saying, you know, like, doctor, I need, I need like the honest truth, you know, um, don't, don't sugarcoat it. I want to know, you know, what's, what's my prognosis, uh, health wise. Um, and so in, in this, in this analogy, you're, you're obviously, you know, the, the doctor here, so to speak. So, what what are what are the things like like specifically that that we need to be thinking about either anticipating or or worrying about as a as a risk? Um, you know, on on one level, people wonder, you know, are we are we facing civilizational collapse, for example? And if not, you know, what what are we facing? Um, and, and sort of like what's that timeline? Yeah, yeah, this is a really yeah, this is a really good and difficult question. Um, in a sense, we've been facing civilizational collapse even before, you know, the appreciation of, uh, of climate change in uh, nuclear catastrophe. You know, that humans for a while have been, you know, facing uh, a civilizational collapse uh, under certain situations, under certain stresses. Um, the difference with climate change is it's almost happening, you know, for a lot of people out of sight, out of mind. You know, it's almost like your 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 nuclear apocalypse has, has not been noticed. You know, your asteroid, you know, that's about to hit the Earth has not been uh, appreciated. I think this is the appreciation is becoming more and more real. Um, but it depends on how much you know, uh, how fast we act. Depends on how much of a catastrophe we see. I think from I mean I've got to be a bit careful here because. I think there's a lot of different opinions out there from different scientists and you know I can't scientifically prove uh, collapse at any particular point you know there are humans are resourceful there are ways to address different things I think for most scientists it's very difficult to imagine how you know organized society continues uh, at you know temperatures of well you know temperatures that are possible this century so, you know, if we get to three, four degrees, I think a lot of people struggle to imagine how that might work. Um, you know, it's, it, it was obviously very difficult to imagine the internet before that came along, but, you know, this is a little bit different in that, you know, entire environments, our entire food system, entire energy system, water systems, everything is, you know, reliant on a certain temperature. So this is a little bit different from that. Um, in terms of what I am really concerned about is I, I actually think that we will do uh, better than what the current, uh, you know, projections of say, uh, you know, 2.3, 4, 5 uh, for our current pledges. I think our pledges will continue to increase as people see every year things get worse. But I'm also concerned that the 
environmental impacts are also uh, in, in increasing quite quickly. And we've actually underestimated um, these large scale processes that I mentioned, mentioned before. We've been very, very good as a scientific community, um, or at least I should say others have who run the, the climate models, uh, about temperature, really, really spot on with temperature. What has been underestimated perhaps is the level to which those temperatures then relate to um, environmental changes. Uh, to weather changes and weather extremes. I think that, that there has been a broad uh, sort of underestimation of how bad that could get. So in my perspective, I have a sort of short-term concerns and I have the, then the long-term sort of big, you know, picture concerns. And my short-term concerns are really to do with these uh, breadbasket failures. Um, I think, you know, there's more and more studies coming out suggesting that you could increase breadbasket failures three, four times uh, once we get to 1.5 degrees uh, by uh, 2030 20, and then towards 2050, you're really increasing the odds uh, higher and higher and higher. And that's when I start, you know, that. so in terms of the short term stuff, I, I'm really concerned about that. And I think that's an important message probably to communicate to people about the urgency. Um, now. If I'm the doctor and I'm prescribing, you know, the prescription, um, first of all, we live in a democracy, so <laughs> I would be a doctor of many doctors uh, and uh, hopefully all of us should be involved in this conversation about how we get there. Um, but what I would say is that however you make it happen, we actually just have to get things done now. And I know that that's a, maybe a bit of a cop out. So how do you get things done? Uh, you can set uh, tighter and tighter regulations. You can even start just having national programs. A really good example of this is um, insulation, for example, in houses. The UK, for example, has a terrible insulation, um, uh, has a terrible building stock for insulation. I think the US does too. I think the US is pretty, pretty bad with insulation too. This is really just obvious stuff to do. And the reason why we struggle to do it is because it's hard administratively and it's hard societally uh, to get this done in a, in a sort of market sense. So, you know, maybe just get on and do it. Maybe you just have a national program, uh, nationalize the program and just get it done. There, there is more scope for government to lead on this uh, with, with uh, the people, you know, so being, you know, uh, citizens assemblies and, and, and good oversight and, and, and good uh, judicial review and things like this. So I'm not saying like, you know, big governments come in and fix everything, but I'm saying, you know, de decentralized power, but, you know, nationalized uh, programs that are actually going to do the things we know need to get done. Um, so that's what I would say is, is, is more consideration of the large scale things that we know we need to do, uh, massive ro rollout of renewable energy, massive energy efficiency programs, uh, real disincentivization of eating meat, uh, especially uh, beef, uh, which uses about 30% uh, of global land in order to produce meat. We just, we just don't have space for that anymore. And we need that space to be drawing down carbon in natural carbon solutions. I think we just need, we need all of the above. So we need all of society moving in that way. Um, some common uh, commentators suggest we actually need a mobilization like we've see, we seen in the world wars. You know, you need to actually say to factories, you know, you're not building that anymore. You know, like in the second world war, it wasn't like you're building cars anymore. Now, now you're building tanks and you guys are now building airplanes. And yeah, I think maybe there's a little bit of that, uh, some more direction uh, from government or more encouragement um, to, to see the speed that we need to see. Yeah. Um, and that, that's what it's about right now is the speed that we need to see. Yeah. One, one of the, the, the sort of the pieces of rhetoric you hear on the right in America a lot, um, and it's a specific example of it is like around Bernie Sanders. So Bernie Sanders is an American senator um, and, and he's a progressive. He supports the Green New Deal. He's he, whole life really dedicated to climate change issues, for example. It's always been you know, the forefront of his policy, um, but he's very wealthy because you know, he's a successful senator in America and he's written many very popular books. And so he owns like three large houses. So, so the right will always say, you know, he's such a hypocrite. Um, he owns, here he is, owns three houses and he's, you know, talking about, you know, shrinking our economy and things like that. Um, and, and that, and that sort of rhetoric comes up a lot. And it's something that I think about because I'm, I'm lucky. I mean, I'm, I'm wealthy relatively myself. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm affluent. Um, and I, as someone who's affluent, you know, I, I drive my car and I run my air conditioners in the, in the, in the winter, summertime. Um, and I, I, once a year, you know, I'll, I'll take flights and these are things that I, I feel guilty about at times or, but it's, how do you, how do you balance, um, that personal responsibility element on the one hand, uh, versus the policy element on the other hand, and is there hypocrisy in, in, in being wealthy and in, 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 uh, living a, a, a wealthy lifestyle? I think, I, I think the, uh, critique of hypocrisy is a little bit limited. I mean, you know, in a sense, so what you want to improve society for the better, it, you know, it, it really depends on the individual, uh, and what they have had to go through 
in order to, to make the decisions they've had. You know, some, some things are sacrifices, uh, some things are not sacrifices, they're just exploration, you know, in terms of changes. So to give you an example, when um, I shifted to a vegetarian diet, I still struggle myself to be a vegan. Um, when I've shifted to a vegetarian diet, I found it hugely exciting and like a huge opportunity, you know, really, really lovely. Um, and I, uh, really enjoyed it I, I also felt a lot better for it I mean these are these are all anecdotal things of course but I'm just saying from my from my um, experience um, and there are other things that are sacrifices you know I, I stopped flying and, and that that is that that's a sacrifice that I got to a stage a few years back where I just thought I just cannot do this anymore I just feel awful every time I get on a plane now I'm lucky because I live in Europe and I have a good uh, system a public transport system which allows me to get around and I can still visit other countries maybe not go as far afield as I would have liked um, but that's that is a sacrifice so some things I think we have to bear in mind that some things are sacrifices and some things are explorations um, and that it's all it's always upon us to, to negotiate that with ourselves, you know, um, and, 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 and listen to ourselves and listen to our emotions about it. For me, it wasn't because I was wanting to make a stand and I'm not going to fly anymore. It's because it was feeling worse and worse, you know, yeah. and then I just thought, this is it. This is it. That's enough. But we're all stuck in systems which require a certain amount of emission. You know, you probably need a car to get to work or you uh, you, you were reliant on the, the food that's available at your local shop. So, you know, there's only so far that people can go in the order of sacrifice, and we need to make it easier and easier to make the choices which are more healthy for us. And part of that's just getting rid of the uneven playing field that we currently have. There are huge incentives for uh, fossil fuel exploration around the world still, and there are still subsidies for fossil fuel exploration. There are still subsidies for animal agriculture. The animal agricultural power and lobby is very strong. Um, so even just getting rid of this, the uneven playing field, where in America, for example, it's incredibly difficult to buy affordable fresh fruit and vegetables i mean it's astonishing it's it's often cheaper to go and get uh, cheap meat with huge environmental harms than uh, vegetables um so you know maybe shifting those you know shifting the playing field um you know yeah. governments do this all the time they shift the playing field of the market uh, and so that enables people to make those choices um which maybe then are not so much of a sacrifice anymore um in terms of this argument about um you know being a hypocrite you know it I can see that. I can see how um, that feels um, uh, quite so, you know, righteous, you know, and 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 I can see I can see that argument. But I think on the whole, um, if it's going to stop you doing something, then uh, forget about it. You know, it's not you're not doing it for other people. You're doing it for yourself. You're doing it for to feel you know feel better. Um, and I, and that's the way I sort of uh, I see about see it. Yeah, and I guess I, I I wish I wish maybe the conversation could sort of try to respect two separate domains where the domain of personal morality where where we you know are hopefully struggling to decrease our own carbon footprint on the one hand and then domain of of the political changes that that we should all be agitating for um, yeah and so like when, when you see someone and there's many examples this is you know, he's a famous example but it, it, this 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 line of reasoning this line of rhetoric comes up all the time and the discourse and i think it's a, it's a huge distraction where you have someone who's whose life is dedicated to uh, actively and successfully uh, affecting American policy for the good. Um, you know, moral failings, or, or, or you might call them, or, or uh, weaknesses of, uh, you, know, um, you know, indulgences that, that he might have uh, in, in, in his private life are, are sort of immaterial to the, to, the, to the broader political struggle which is going on. Yeah, right? totally. Yeah, yeah, I totally. And and when when you when you sort of think about the things that we can do as individuals, and 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 the things that you know uh, we can uh, feel strongly about, I often think about things in terms of internal actions and external actions. You know, your external actions are you know talking to people uh, about the things that you're concerned about. It's talking about the sort of the, the 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 difficulties that you face in taking the actions that you want. You know, so you want to stop flying. I mean, that's just really difficult if you. Um, rely on that to see family across the world or something you know i mean this, these are really difficult choices um, but talking about them to other people externalizing uh, those uh, discussions can help you sort of negotiate them and, and and figure them out um you know other external things that you know activism and those things that you can do in order to further a cause to make your voice heard uh, and then on the internal side is what we've just already been talking about this sort of like this emotional negotiation of, of, of what you can do um i mean from a morality perspective there are ways in which you could see um 
how it's justifiable to actually emit more in the short term in certain situations than in the long term. For example, if you have uh, heat waves coming through and Europe now is going to get a whole bunch of uh, air conditioners because we're getting hotter and hotter over here. Um, does that mean then that you shouldn't be turning on those air conditioners because the grid is still partially driven by fossil fuels? Well, actually, there's a moral choice there. You know, there's a moral there's a moral trade off to, to in what you do. Um, so, yeah, I think these are hugely difficult questions, and I think you can alienate people very, very quickly uh, from being engaged uh, by focusing too much on what other people are doing, you know, these charges of hypocrisy and these sorts of things. I think you're quite right. Yeah. And, and then another thing which uh, your book sort of, I think, deals with a little bit is, um, again, as someone who's, who's affluent and feels guilt um, for, for a certain lifestyle, uh, you know, choices or moral failings, you might say, um, I, I want to be able to just donate money. To, to sort of assuage my assuage my guilt um and and i to some extent i, I mean I, I do donate money to, to various causes that you know causes that like buy up land or, or you know plant trees uh, is that is that a fool's errand is that like is that a is that a waste of of time is, is that possible to, to donate money to, to sort it's, of it's such a, it's such a great question um so you have to be very very careful a lot of these schemes are not what they seem um and when you donate a plant, for example, uh, we don't know what kinds of uh, extremes they may see in the future. So, you know, already a lot of the sort of uh, carbon um, credits that people have bought in California, for example, have gone up in smoke during during fires. So you have to be incredibly careful about and look into what it is that you're um, you're actually signing up to. Um, and I know that's not a great message, and that might be a demotivating message. Actually, what I would say is, um, if you are going to donate to things, you know, uh, donate to things locally, things that you can. And, um, see. So there's so much good work being done in, in so many different areas. I mean, even here in The Hague, in the Netherlands, for example, we have um, uh, a charity that brings in food uh, from the community gardens around The Hague uh, and then, you know, distributes that around The Hague. Um, so these sorts of uh, these sorts of things, there's natural climate uh, solutions, sort of uh, uh, agro uh, ecological uh, solutions, which need money. Uh, look closely nearby you. What's, what's happening and what you can denote with is what was, would be my uh, suggestion. And if you really want to um, look at um, getting rid of your whole guilt, right? So say just hypothetically, um, you could just get rid of your entire carbon footprint. How much would that cost? Well, you can do direct air capture uh, and direct air capture would cost you around $10,000 a year for a European emissions and about, Fifteen to twenty thousand dollars a year for um, U.S. emissions. Now that price is going to come down over time, but that's kind of the amount that you're talking about. <laughs> so then maybe just have a think: Would you rather pay that money or make some change? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah that's like, helpful. Yeah. Um, and um, the other thing that you want to think about is if you are going to sort of like do sort of direct air capture of things, there are huge issues with that in terms of the materials used, the other environmental issues. So maybe it's worthwhile, you know, reducing what you can before you take the sort of final step of like, oh, okay, I'm just going to pay for, you know, sequestering yeah. this carbon. And, and there's a big market around that, right? There's a big market of assaging people like me, assaging their guilt, you know, um, and, and, and companies also, you know, they, they claim net zero emissions by, you know, planting trees and things like that. And I think like what, what your book talks about is a lot of it is a distraction and a lot of it is, um, is a way of sort of, uh, you know, trying to PR, you know, public relations, trying to put a, a face on something that's not, that you can't really, you know, there's a lot of green, there's a lot of greenwashing. And, you know, if you, um, you know, there's uh, on, on these uh, uh, flight um, um, uh, websites, you know, they, they'll say, oh, you can offset for a dollar, you know. Right. I mean, if you believe that, I mean, yeah. do, you, do you really think you can believe a, a dollar, uh, you know, um, to offset a flight? Um, so you just be a bit wary about it, I think. And as I say, local solutions are going to have to, you know, be everywhere. Um, yeah. So, you know, look, look locally and look what you can be involved with it also as a community. Yeah. Okay. That's great. We're, we're, we're basically, you know, we got to wrap up. This has uh, been going on for an hour. I guess the last thing I just want to um, sort of ask you about is uh, sort of how it's, how it's uh, affected your life. And in, 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 from a psychological perspective, you talk in the book, how like, you, this is actually a quote I have open the sheer expanse of the issue explains why people struggle to talk about it. How can you bring up such a problem in polite conversation? It's like dropping news of a terminal of terminal cancer in an office canteen um how yeah how, how, how do you uh how has this work affected you and and i guess sort of what are your closing your closing thoughts for us um as we as we sign off yeah. 
Well, I mean, I think with that quote, I think I'm just trying to reflect what a lot of people feel about it. And um, one of the ways it's affected me is that I don't actually think that anymore. I'll just drop that. <laughs> I'll drop this information into any uh, work meeting that I have. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, even if this is an administrative meeting about something totally, you know, totally different. To, and you, know, you might be thinking, well, he must be great fun in meetings. But uh, I just think it puts things in perspective a little bit about what we should be, uh, you know, focusing on as uh, institutions, you know, things like the, the university. And um, has it affected me? It was very, um, yeah, it, it, we often talk about, um, we often write in scientific papers in a very sort of uh, non-emotional way. Uh, and so when I write papers, you know, although it, it can be very sort of, um, it can be quite depressing to, to read a lot of the, the research that's coming out. There's a lot of the climate research and the, um, the, the risky research. Um, it is somehow sanitized by the language. And I think that's also maybe a disservice that scientists do to one another. I mean, we have to have that desanitized language in, in the scientific literature, but perhaps when we're talking to one another, uh, we can be a little bit more, uh, you know, engaged in the sort of emotions of how this makes us feel. Um, because, yeah, it's it, once you start to write it, and in the book, I tried to engage with these emotions as you, as you when you when you read that quote early, earlier, um, that was a real struggle to write, um, clearly. I mean, um, so, um, I, I, I think for me, it's made me much less uh, quiet about the issues, uh, you know, about speaking up in, in meetings and things like this. And I hope it's the same for other people as well, you know, when they read the book, that they feel like uh, they are well armed, that they have the, the, the information to hand, they know, they have a sense of how fast things have to move and what the um, priorities really need to be in order to secure a future, a livable future. Uh, and that's what I hope people get from, uh, from the book as well. Yeah. Dr. Paul Behrens, it was an incredibly insightful read and a really, a really informative, eye-opening read in a lot of ways. It was, it, was a, it was a great read in addition to being informative. And this conversation has also been really, really insightful and, um, and, in, and informative. And uh, I thank you so much for your- Thanks, Amika. It's great, great to talk yeah. with you. Yeah. Have a great day.